one of the skills that an architect must have is to be able to listen. You'll have a conversation. I'll say to you, what do you think? I have this idea. And you'll say, oh, wow. And that would mean we could do this. And that takes it further. So that's discovering the way our brains work. It's neurons in different parts of the brain. And ideas and innovations come when a part of the brain that's never thought about something suddenly connects but wildly. Hello, this is Barbara St. Clair, your host for AI Arts In, a podcast by Creative Finellis. And I am here today with Jan Weymouth, who is an architect well known for designing and making sure beautiful museums for art come into being in this world. Um, right now, Jan is working on the... Full name is the Tom and Mary James Museum of Western and Wildlife Art. Okay, so what are you doing for that project, if you don't mind? Well, the short name is the James Museum. Okay. And uh, we are... Uh, Tom and Mary have an extensive collection, which they have collected throughout their lives. And it's a fascinating one. And in many ways, it's the story of America, of our country, from prehistoric times to today. And so a great deal of the collection is today is shown at the Raymond James buildings in St. Pete. But Tom and Mary have decided to give it to the community and as well to give the community a museum to house it and as well wow. to try to put together an endowment so that the museum starts out as a success and continues as a success. So the building will be in downtown St. Pete on Central Avenue, which could not be more downtown, about midway between the Museum of Fine Arts on Beach Drive and the Dali Museum further to the south. So it will be, and I worked on both of those museums, so I feel honored to have been asked to work on this one. But it will be very different because the site is very different, the collection is completely different, and I also don't really like to repeat mm -hmm, myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm working with an excellent team, working very closely with Tom and Mary and their team, and very closely with our construction team. So you mentioned, of course, that uh, you worked on the Museum of Fine Arts and the Dali. I think many people are more familiar with the Dali than perhaps the Museum of Fine Arts. And uh, in looking at some of the things that you said about the process when you were working on the design for the Dali Museum, you were very much influenced by the artist himself and how you thought about the museum and how you came up with some of the design concepts. Can I get you to talk about that a little bit? Because I think people, they can see the Dali Museum, so they'll be able to take what you're saying and reflect back on it in terms of what they know. Of course, I was influenced by the collection and by Salvador Dali, but quite frankly, that's not where you start when you're working on a design. You start, I was trained at Harvard and MIT. Mm -hmm. Um, in science, in engineering, in culture, in art, in math, chemistry, physics, materials science. 
and all of those things. And you really start by what does the client want, whether I'm working on a science building, an office building, what do they want? And also what's in between the lines of what they're asking for? What is the site? So you work from the outside in, which is the site and the culture and the materials that are available, the kind of the kind of skills that the community has with which to build. And then from the inside out as to what's really needed and what's wished for, what's hoped for, and how will it function. So it's very much a puzzle and trying to put a puzzle together, um, a crucial aspect which has been stated, was stated wonderfully by a wonderful architect named Le Corbusier, whose work all of us architects have studied, was that first you answer, you try to figure out what the question is. And you try to state the question very clearly. And if you can state that question clearly, you will then discover the answers to it. And that's certainly what happened with the DALI. It's what happened when I was working for IMP on the Louvre in Paris, where I was his chief of design for that. It's how uh, I watched him and worked with him when we were doing the East Wing of the National Gallery when I was very young, working for him right after college. Is First, you try to figure out how do we resolve it in the most functional, the most logical way. And then let that, through that, discover what it wants to be. Not so much what you want it to be, but what it wants to be. So you mentioned um, the Louvre, and I want to come back to that, especially because you mentioned that you were young when you worked with him. And I think for a young architect, that must be marvelous, marvelous experience. But before we get to that, um, you said that the important thing was to determine what's the question. So for the Dali Museum, what was the question? Well, the question, we started the question was a letter which we received from the director and the board, representing the board of the museum. And they were asking for four things. First thing was we wish to protect the collection curatorially and from the weather and to exhibit it. That's number one. Number two is we don't, we want to have a very efficient building without any waste. Don't waste a square inch. Uh, and we want it to function very well. Number three, we have a budget. We're raising money for it but we wish for you to respect that budget and all the way through the project. Number four, which was a kind of a puzzle at first, was, and we want it to be iconic and not like any museum we've ever seen before. Um, okay. When they, so the answer to the first question is we are in Florida, the beautiful site which the city of St. Petersburg and Mayor Rick Baker made a huge effort to help the museum obtain and gave it that site. It's right on the water. It's gorgeous. It's a wonderful site. And it's very close to downtown. It's walking distance from the hotels and restaurants. But 
we're in Florida, and we're right on the water. And so, and we sometimes, we're very lucky, we've been very lucky for a long time, but we, a bad storm could flood the city. Mm -hmm. And bad winds can blow things down and blow things off the roof and break things. So the first thing we have to do is to make it resistant to a Category 5 hurricane, wow. which we have not seen in our lifetimes, but we could. It can happen. That's number one. So we have to make the walls very strong. We have to make them out of very strong reinforced concrete. And we have to make the glass very strong. So that's number one. Number two, how do you make it efficient? You make it a compact plan with a minimum amount of corridor and the maximum use of space, and you aren't silly about it. Number three, for economy's sake, you keep the building compact. Mm -hmm. You don't let it you don't let it have lots of arms and wings. So that suggested, and you make it easy to build. So we made it a box, mm -hmm. and we made it a three-story box, which helped in terms of hurricanes and floods, and helped in terms of making it compact. At that point, having suggested all of those answers to the beginning to discover those answers with the board, they all said, well, how will it be iconic? Sure, how do you make a box iconic? And I said, that will come from the first three questions in answering and solving those. And the iconic part uh, came from the juxtaposition of glass, which is a beautiful, translucent, reflective material, very ephemeral looking, and the concrete, which is raw concrete. And those are sort of a yin and yang between those two. And then the glass system which we selected was an outgrowth of Dali's friendship with Buckminster Fuller, a marvelous inventor, a great figure of the 20th century, inventor, creator, artist, engineer, also a hero of mine, whom I had met when I was young and a student. And so working with him and with wonderful engineering firms, we were able to then make the glass take that shape, which is a highly functional shape, and the curve actually makes it stronger, and it's very resistant, but it also, the juxtaposition of the two led to the building. That's a long answer to a short question. Well, but that's, I think, a very interesting answer and, and important because um, when I, I have to tell you, I've been to the Dali many times, and I would have never known it was a box. Now that I think about it, and I imagine myself on the different floors and what I did, and I was like, oh, yes, of course it's a box, but it doesn't read like a box when you're inside it, and it doesn't read yeah. like a box when you're looking at it. It seems very organic and, and uh, you know, mm -hmm. almost like a natural shape rather than a rectangular yes. shape. Well, the concrete part is uh, looks very man-made. Mm -hmm. It's very Cartesian. It's gridded. You can tell it's made by man, and the natural form of the glass is really shaped by physics. In the same way nature will, will shape a plant or, or an amoeba or our bones. So now I want to 
jump back in time. I want to jump us from this amazingly successful Dali Museum that people come from around the world to see, and they come for the collection, but the experience of the building itself is also magnificent for visitors. I want to jump from that, which is very modern and in our time, to an older project that you worked on that I think has very similar aspects for people when they see it, which was the projects for the Louvre. <laughs> if you would be so kind as to tell us a little bit about what you did on that project, and even maybe describe the project, because I'm not sure that everyone who would be listening to this is familiar with it. Well, I had been working, as I said, from leaving college for Mr. Pay in New York. Um, after we had completed the design of the East Wing of the National Gallery, which and that's I, led, in Washington, I led for him, that's in Washington, D.C., on the Mall, I uh, left his firm to found my own firm, which I had for a decade in New York City. Um, and I did a whole lot of projects of which I'm quite proud then as a private architect. But we remained, had always remained friends. And he did ask me back when he was asked by President Mitterrand to work on the Louvre. And he asked me to be his chief of design for that project. And his it was his idea, his insight, that the Palace of the Louvre goes back to the 11th century, and it's been added on to all the way through into the 18th, 19th century. And it's very classical, it's very, it's a lesson in architectural history and its evolution. But what the Louvre needed, their, what they, we call a program, their needs, was to vastly expand their entrance. At that time, they were getting two and a half million, three million visitors in a good year. And it was not a good experience to have to wait in line for an hour and a half before you could finally make your way through the crowd inside. And the galleries were constricted. So we realized to add that kind of space to the existing building would have gutted it, would have destroyed the extraordinary rooms inside and endangered the building. But the parking lot, which was in the courtyard, which is a big parking lot, it's like three football fields side by side, they call it the Cour Napoléon, the parking lot was a disaster, it was dusty, it was dirty, it was not attractive. But if we were to dig down underground, underneath, that parking lot and create the space that they needed, we would also be able to create the entrance in the middle of that courtyard. And you, if you could go down into the courtyard, then you'd be able to reach the three wings of the Louvre underground and avoid having to hurt the historic palace by adding all of the ticketing booths and all of the things you need for an entrance of a major museum. You could also add all of the space they needed to store art and for the guards to have locker rooms, all of those things. And the advantage of that was that then the courtyard would be a flat courtyard and you could still see the museum and you wouldn't have hurt that. However, we didn't, pay did not, we did not want to create an entrance to a major, the most important museum in the world, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. that looked like a subway stop, subway tunnel. Sure. Go down here into this dark space. 
So it was quite obvious that the entrance needed a major skylight. Mm -hmm. And that led to then saying that skylight, what shape should it have? It could be, if it could be a pyramid, then it would be a point at the top and zero at the top. If it's all made of glass, then you can even see through it. If you keep the scale just right, it will feel right in the courtyard. And that led to the idea of the glass pyramid. Well, as I'm listening to you, it's really amazing to me because I'm following along with, if you ask the right question, if you identify the right question, you will come to the answer. And as you laid it out, the right question, how do we answer this need to get people in and out without disturbing the building or harming the building? Uh, well, you know, we go underground and how do we make it not look like a subway stop? Well, we build a pyramid and it seems very logical, but as a visitor, so somebody looking at that is like, what crossed my mind is, how in the world would you get to a pyramid with the Louvre? And so it's, it's, it's fascinating to me to listen to you and seems so logical and right. But I'm guessing if you'd asked a thousand people, what do you think about putting a pyramid right in front of this museum? They would have thought you were crazy. They did. <laughs> they, initially, until we could explain it to people, they didn't see the logic. Now, of course, it's on every T-shirt and every postcard, and people like it. But at the time, it seemed, gosh, what are these, what's this Ameri Chinese American architect and all these Yankees trying to do to our museum? Sure. But we had our defenders, and we had, we had our, our opponents. It sounds like you got the question right, and as you said, if you get the, the question, question right, you, question. you get the answer. So I'm going to be a little bit nosy right now, but when you first worked with him, the National Gallery, that was one of your first positions outside after college? Yes, yes. I was in my 20s. So how is it that a young architect right out of college gets to work with one of the most innovative and brilliant architects of the time? I was very fortunate. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I had good grades. I had good grades. I had a good portfolio, but I managed to have an interview. Well, you must have wanted it very badly. I you did. Have... I did. So did you think to yourself, who in the world would I like to work with the most and name, you know, come up with a few people and then yes. reach out to them? Yes. So you also mentioned uh, that Buckminster Fuller was one of your heroes. How did you come to be familiar with what he was doing? Um, in college. I studied his work, read his books, went to a lecture of his, and I was extremely fortunate. I'd won a grant from MIT to a traveling grant, uh, and I was able to uh, get an internship at an, an architectural office, an interesting architectural office in Athens, Greece. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see Greece, and I wanted to... That was a summer internship. And I was asked to be the scribe for a uh, conference uh, of fascinating and interesting and important scientists and, and writers and historians that the, uh, that office had organized, and Constantine Doxiadis' office had organized. So I was the scribe for this conference, and Bucky Fuller was there, Margaret Mead was there, um, and people whose books I had read and been told to read, etc. So it was quite fascinating. And Bucky and Margaret were friends, and I managed to sit at their feet a number of evenings and, and just listen to them. Very brilliant people. 
Yes, they were. I, I come from the anthropology background, so of course Margaret Mead uh, rings a bell for me. I also had the the pleasure of listening to Buckminster Fuller um, back in the day. You Did you know you wanted to be an architect when you were young, or did you sort of evolve into it? How did that happen? I, uh, in my freshman year, uh, I, my roommate, freshman year at Harvard, uh, was the son of a family friend. And that family took me in every weekend. And his father was a wonderful Boston architect mm -hmm. named James Lawrence. And because I admired him and I liked to draw and I liked science and I liked history, I thought, gosh, that would be a great thing to do. I'd like to be like him and see if I could. that could be my profession. So that's I figured it out freshman year and I haven't looked back since. Well, that's, that's fantastic. So you said that um, after you worked on the National Gallery, you went and opened your own firm. And what kind of, and you said you did some buildings that you were proud of. Can you talk about some of the work you did in that time? Um, yes, of course. I started out small, and uh, but by the time after some time, I was asked to do a number of art galleries for nationally known art dealers, Leo Castelli, Richard Feigen, people like that, and that was fascinating. And I had already some good grounding because of the National Gallery and how to do that. I was able to do some houses, interesting houses in Connecticut and uh, apartments, and also pioneered loft conversions at a time when that wasn't, people hadn't cottoned on to how, what a resource we have in when an industrial area changes and the industry changes and people change how they work. And there's this wonderful, solid, beautiful old building. Well, what you, can you do with it? You can turn it into a studio, you can make it an apartment. And so I, I did a lot of that as well, including my own. So you said you took a lead on that. Um, is that one of the questions did, that you answered in terms of looking at those old buildings and saying, how can we make use of them? Or how did you, it sounded like you were kind of at the forefront of that in the way you've described it. I wasn't the only one, but a number of young architects and artists were discovering that. And I started by discovering that I didn't have a great deal of money and I needed a space to have a studio and to live in it. And I found a wonderful old uh, fur factory mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, that could would rent me some space. So I started for myself and then did other things. So innovation and, and art, the world of art, seems to be very much a constant in your career. Innovation is a crucial word. Um, our profession of design is moving at light speed now. And materials are changing, technologies are changing, robotics is coming in, we do everything on computers now. So it's, it's crucial to stay abreast of that, to take advantage of the wonderful opportunities that are coming up. And... Um, so I think that, I mean, my field is, I think people sometimes think that an architect draws something on the back of an envelope and gives it to a builder mm -hmm. and says, 
make that happen. It doesn't work like that. You have to, you have to work with, you have to find and work with wonderful engineers. You find, uh, you find wonderful contractors. You find people who have invented a new way of making glass, uh, or a new way of creating uh, shapes. I mean, the Dali uh, use of glass, that was the first use of that technology in the North America. Now it's been used more. Now it's in Shanghai and it's, and it's in the, the Emirates. But that was an answer to a question that made enormous sense. We could afford it, it was strong, and it, and it made sense. on the Tom and Mary James Museum of Western and Wildlife Art. You talked about it being historical from essentially prehistoric times through today. And um, I think a lot of people, when they think about Western art and when they think about wildlife art, think of historic or nostalgic or traditional. And you and I have just been talking about innovation and modernity, so to speak. So where does innovation and, and the use of new materials, the use of new engineering, all that creativity, where does that fit in for you with, with the museum that you're working on now? Well, we have to, the building was just within which the collection will be, it was designed as an office building with parking on top of it. And the bottom two floors were designed as offices and it occupies an entire city block, which is very big. Uh, and that means that the spaces inside are very deep. One thing, for instance, that to me is very important, and I think to curators is very important, paintings are very often created by their artists, drawings and paintings, within natural light. And that means, wouldn't it be nice to show them in natural light, because natural light has more life, it's more true, it's got more color uh, than artificial light, whether it's incandescent or fluorescent or LED lighting. So we are trying a way we've never used before. Every museum I've worked on, we've tried to get natural light in, from the National Gallery of Art East Wing to the Louvre, at the Louvre, we were able to use the classic system of skylights because we, the paintings on the third floor of the galleries, you can let the light down through that and filter it and make it correct. But here we can't because mm -hmm. on the second floor where the galleries will be, there are seven more floors of parking on top of you. You can't put skylights in. So we are trying, we're doing something that I think will be quite successful and that we have ribbons of light above the walls where the outside walls where paintings, some of the paintings will be shown. And those ribbons, the light will come in and be bounced by a baffle back down onto the walls that are facing the outside. It'll be natural light. Um, we're still testing that uh, idea with computer-aided light tests and by simple cardboard models to make sure it works. At the Frost Art Museum in Miami for Florida International University, 
we invented special ways of baffling the light from above uh, using surfboard technology. Okay, you got to <laughs> tell me a little bit more about that. <laughs> well, it, that's a museum that's worth the trip. Um, it's a small museum, fascinating shows. I'm very proud of it. And, uh, and there, the surfboard technology, we wanted to, our client wanted to have skylights. We talked about it, and I said, well, we can do it like we did it at the Louvre. And Mrs. Frost, the donor, with her husband, Philip, said, but Jan, I, I want something that's completely unique and special to our museum. Mm -hmm. So we tried different ways, and we thought that optically, if we could create fins that are sort of like small surfboards or skateboards with a perfect parabolic curvature on the inside and the outside. We tried to figure out how to make them. So we tried you know, metal, plaster, etc. It turned out that the most economical and intelligent way to do it would be to do it like you'd build a skimboard or a surfboard. So we talked to surfboard makers. <laughs> I love this, yeah. So um, that's innovation's crucial to every project. So you're going to bring some of the, that baffle technology into the James Museum? We're using a different kind of... Where this one we're able to do in a simpler way because the, of the way the light is coming in. It's going to be done with plaster. So is, is that the key problem for the Raymond James? How you take a building that was a commercial building, is very large, and has parking on top of it and turn it into a museum experience for people? That is that is a very important challenge, which I spoke of when we first started talking, when I first started talking with, with Tom and Mary. Um, the building as it was at that time, those ground floors were very somewhat forbidding. They'd never been designed to invite a lot of public in. So, and also... It's a collection of Western and wildlife art. And you think, how are you going to say that? So we are making the facade of the bottom two floors. The bottom floor, because it's going to want to welcome, is all glass. The next floor up is uh, essentially weathered copper with a the, sh the shade of turquoise, which is a Western material, and copper is a Western material, and it's pre-weathered so that it'll look like it's 25 years old to begin with, and it'll keep on weathering. But then as well, we wanted to, when, you th when I think of the West, you think of the desert, you think of the forest, but you also think of the canyons, mm -hmm. and you think of the arroyos, which are small canyons. And so, and you think of the mesas and the mountains. And when you think of those, you tend to think, I tend to think of weathered stri uh, strata of sandstone, as you would see if you went down the, the Grand Canyon in a raft. So it's eons of time that have deposited these layers of different colors, and you can see the ages through that. So we're making at the entrance and we're using in the sidewalks and features within the outside of the building and inside, we're using a very beautiful sandstone. 
Mm-hmm. And the entrance will be a mesa. Wow. Eight stories high. Kind of abstract version of it. And it's not, we're not doing a Universal Studios version of it. We're doing it in an abstract way. So it feels more timeless, I think. And it's real stone. So those are some innovations, and we hope that that will call people in. So let me ask you a question about that, because St. Pete has become a urban, vibrant, funky is not quite the right word, but hip, energized place. It doesn't feel to me like the South exactly. I I don't know where it feels like, but it, it certainly doesn't feel like the West. When you're describing the striated sandstone and the valleys and the West has those big skies and that you can see for miles and the way the light is, it would seem to me that another problem you would need to solve is how you make that Western feel belong in Central Avenue, downtown St. Pete. Well, the collection is largely, it's a lot of it is cowboy art mm-hmm. um, and a large part of it and one of the most fascinating parts is Native American art. Um, Navajo, Sunni, Hopi, by great artists, mm-hmm. many of them still alive. And the sculptures that Tom and Mary have collected are in bronze or in stone, and they were intended to be seen outside. So the stone and the copper are, in, are intended to make the art feel at home. Mm-hmm. and to create a backdrop that gives it a presence. But there's a very interesting aspect of St. Petersburg that a lot of us tend to forget. The Bay Area is where Western Euro- or European culture first came in contact with Native American culture and the Americas. Mm-hmm. This is where it happened. This is where Ponce de Leon came, here to Tampa Bay. This was the beginning. This was not where Narvaez started his extraordinary voyage to try to get back. Um, this is where the two cultures that had been separated for so much, for so long suddenly met each other. So that's, I think, part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom and Mary's collection is mostly from from the southwest of the United States. But I think that's an important part of the story. So when somebody goes to the museum, when someone's outside, they will see some of the sculptures, they will see the sandstone mesa kind of abstract sensibility of uh, a Western landscape. And will they feel from the outside, because I, I, I'm absolutely clear from the inside that they will feel like they belong in that space, especially after you describing the natural light. Is How how about the transition from Central Avenue in into the museum with that um, sort of Western feel? We are transforming the whole sidewalk from 2nd Street to 1st Street along Central on our side of the street into a series of terraces. Mm-hmm using planting uh, and terracing and sandstone to make it. And some of it will be place for cafe tables to continue the feeling of Beach Drive. So to make people want to go in and out. And so I think that, I think it will be very inviting 
In a way, it sounds similar to the question with the Louvre and the pyramid. You're establishing something quite different than what people maybe might expect, but somehow, because you're answering the right questions, it it becomes very inviting, and it becomes very welcoming rather than, you know, hi, I'm a, I'm an object. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, on the web, you can see some of our our renderings and drawings, and we've done hundreds of those during the design process, both as a design tool and also as a communication tool to explain and get opinions so that uh, Tom and Mary and their team can say, well, we like this option better. That looks nice, but could you change it in some mm -hmm. way, etc." So is there a point as an architect where you start to see the building in your mind before it starts to exist as a drawing or as a CAD? Um, when does it start to come alive for you in three dimensions, let's say? Well, uh, I think it's, it's through, it's drawing. It's hand drawing. It's hand drawing, computer drawing. But as I said, it's a, it's a discovery process. And what's interesting is you, you can look at it. I go back to an old notebook, early notebook from the project, and I see the scribbles and the, the, a sketch. And then two or three notebooks further down the line, months later, you see that same sketch, but it, now it's much clearer and you understand it better. And some of the extra lines have disappeared. So I think you, it, you discover it. You learn what it is. It sounds like though there's continuity that when you go back to that beginning you can you can see the history in it. It, it it you can see the evolution rather than maybe abrupt changes or it's nothing like what you originally started with. When you're lucky, <laughs> there are dead ends. You 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 say, oh there are three options. How do we solve this in three ways? And A, B, and C. And you say, okay, well let's try C. And then you C leads to oh well if we messed with that. And it's collaborative, too. You listen to your colleagues and you listen to your engineers and clients. And they suggest things. And it evolves. But so it's like a branching tree. You, you keep and there are there are little dead ends. You say, oh, well, we tried that. That's not the right way to do it. And that was a good discovery. We're not going to go do that. We'll try this other one that's more promising. So you're working with a whole team on the James Museum. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Um, when the peer competition was announced, uh, I went to friends at two firms, to uh, Harvard Jolly Architecture and uh, to Wanamaker Jensen, two wonderful firms with whom I uh, were friends. And we formed a joint venture, which we call the St. Pete Design Group. And it was when Tom asked me to work on his and Mary's museum, uh, I went back to the St. Pete Design Group and had said, are you in? And they said, yes, we are. Because architecture is a, it's a, we like to say it's a contact sport. Mm. And it, it requires many, many different skills and lots of collaboration. And uh, I'm proud of my partners on that. So how... Tell me a little bit more how you work with partners. That, that's a collaborative process. So do you all sit around a room, you know, a big table and draw on whiteboards or, you know, how do you? Sometimes it's over coffee and it's just two of us. 
Sometimes it's in the morning when you call one, I'll call somebody and I'll say, I had this crazy idea, what do you think? Or they'll do the same. And, uh, and uh, one of the skills that an architect must have is to be able to listen. Because in two heads are better than one. Um, and you'll have a conversation, I'll say to you, what do you think, I have this idea, and you'll say, oh, wow, and that would mean we could do this. And that takes it further. So that's discovering the way our brains work. It's neurons in different parts of the brain, and ideas and innovations come when a part of the brain that's never thought about something suddenly connects wildly with another neuron. Bucky talked about that. He said, that's where ideas come from. When an experience you had when you were seven, is which you've never thought about, suddenly comes back to you with in another context, and you put these things together. So it's a good argument for working with people and, and having a, a very, team. It's a very good argument. And I'm a very stubborn person. I'm a very obsessive person. I'm very detail-oriented, but I try not to be too stubborn when I'm listening to, to my colleagues and friends and clients and engineers and contractors um, who have a thought. They may well be right and very often are. named as a St. Petersburg architect, yet you have international and national uh, presence. What is the choice of being here in, in the Tampa Bay area? Well, I would say I'm a Tampa Bay area um, architect. Um, I'm very proud of the Ringling, sure. uh, which I did, where I did the master plan and three buildings for the, for the, the Ringling. Um, I think Tampa Bay is just a very vibrant and, and special place. I've done a lot of buildings, and I've done buildings in Tampa. I, I did the uh, Interdisciplinary Sciences Building at USF in Tampa. I've done a science building, a biomolecular uh, building for UCF over in near Orlando. But, but we're based here, and we love it here. We've been here now, gosh, probably 15 years. Is there anything in particular about it that you love? Does it speak to you? It speaks to us. I love the people. I love the cities. I love the nature. Uh, and I feel that at this moment, we are at a moment of flowering of, of, of life and ideas um, that's one doesn't always see. I was in New York when, when there was a flowering, at the very end of the flowering of the abstract expressionism and the birth of pop art. That was a fascinating vibe. I can feel the same vibe different in a different way that we have here. Any particular examples come to mind of, of how you're seeing that vibe? Well, look at what's happening in, uh, in South St. Pete in the, uh, the warehouse district. Look what's happening on Central. Um, look at the flowering of Beach Drive and how the plans to take Beach Drive further south. How many cities in the world, you know, I mean, we love Paris, 
because you walk down the street in Paris or in Bilbao or in Marseille, you walk down the street and there's life with different generations and little children and grandparents and young people and people talking and the cafes on the streets. That happens here. I mean, the city doesn't go to sleep. And that's, that's a sign of wonderful life. And it's part of the, there's the part of the intellectual life. We have very strong universities and colleges here and good schools. So. Where do you go for your inspiration? It comes from everywhere. It comes from an article you read. It comes from a book you're reading. It comes from a conversation with a friend. It comes from something you see on television. It comes from an article in Scientific American. It comes from a family member saying, gosh, you know, look at San Antonio. You know, it, it comes from everywhere. So anything particular that's inspiring you right at the moment? Uh, we just uh, came back from San Antonio, and we thought it's a fascinating city. So your whole your family is very involved in arts. In fact, your wife, Susanna, is the executive director of the Business Committee for the Arts of Tampa Bay. What I am so proud of what she is doing with, with that organization through her imagination, her energy, her extraordinary hard work, and her vision um, in terms of raising scholarships for young students in high school for them to use for their tuition at, in universities. And it's, it's a remarkable thing. She's also really done a lot to create influence and understanding of the arts between you know, business communities and, and uh, visitors. And she takes people around to different art, art locations and engages them. She has sometimes once a month, sometimes four times a month, cultural encounters by invitation for her board and for others in every kind of art. It'll be theater, it'll be dance, it'll be music, it would be gallery experience, a poetry experience, um, and they are utterly riveting. And uh, she does them with her partners. Um, I think she has 40 different organizations that are partners in, in that. And it's, it's a way of just connecting dots within the community. So I have benefited enormously from since she's been doing this because I'm learning about how in the th three counties that the TBBCA works, what is happening. Everything from chalk artists to very fine artists to extraordinary musicians to the orchestra to all of the theater groups here. Well, you talked about the Tampa Bay area and St. Pete area really flowering, and I guess I would have to say that you and Susanna's presence here and engagement here and the things that you both bring to the table are really part of why the community is flowering. There's many, many parts of why, but certainly having um, having both of you engaged and doing things like, you know, the Dali and the James Museum and the Ringling Museum in Sarasota and 
And her, the Museum of Fine Arts. And the Museum of Fine Arts and her cultural encounters that are very concrete, and I'm not using that as a pun, but very concrete benefits to the community, and they make a tremendous difference. So I think we're very, very lucky to have both of you here. Well, thank you. I, I, we hope that's, that our presence here is, is, is part of that stream of energy that, that is happening here. I think it is. Well, thank you very much. And uh, you've been listening to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. And I've been here with Jan Weymouth, internationally renowned architect who the community is lucky enough to have as one of our residents in the area and working very hard to help increase the opportunities to see and experience art and really good architecture. Well, thank you very much. You've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can hear more of their great work and some wonderful conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists at our website, creativepinellas.org. This is Barbara St. Clair. Thank you for listening.